This is Cinema Degeneration. I am the devil, and I am here to do the devil's work. I, I just can't take no pleasure in killing. Just some things you gotta do. We all go a little mad sometimes. You wanna know what happens to an eyeball when it gets punctured? You just can't let them go? Go! Hi, I'm Jackie. Wanna play? <laughs> Please, God. This is God. The dead will walk here. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Your suffering will be legendary even in hell. <laughs> It's alive, it's alive, it's alive. They all flow down here. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Boy, you're doomed. On this show, this is your brain on film. We turn our attention to films that warp your minds and melt your faces. We will be discussing the psychedelic themes explored by Alejandro Jodorowsky, Kapar Noe, and David Lynch. We'll also be cranking the party up to 11 by exploring the ruckus party films of Cheech and Chong, Broken Lizard, National Lampoons, and Jay and Silent Bob. Join us for a mind-altering good time. And remember... Don't try this at home.
I happened upon it by pure accident, and and it was about a year and a half, two years before I had even heard of uh, um, an inkling of Mandy being made, and I was just like, this guy's got to make another film. I just hope he doesn't take another eight years to make another film. You know, you never know. He could be a perfectionist, and that's just that's just what he does. Or he doesn't make a movie until he's inspired, rather than a paycheck. Well, with the re- uh, the interviews that I've watched just over the last couple of days with him, he uh, he definitely seems like that type of guy. He just seems like you know he uh, Nicholas Cage in an interview had suggested him to to uh, DC some executives at DC to direct the next um, Superman movie, and he was just like, "No, I have no interest in doing that. I like the little niche that I have. I like what I'm working with, and I'll just continue to work with it." Exactly. But if he keeps putting movies out like this, then that's that's not a big deal. Yeah, as long, long as he keeps making quality films. And uh, Beyond the Black Rainbow, if, like I said, if you haven't seen it, it it's definitely uh, it's one for the ages. <laughs> it's another it's it's a it's kind of one of those. It's, it's a sister film to to Mandy. It's the same intense visual style. And I tried looking it up. I, I couldn't find it, but he he has a special thanks in the IMDb for the Void, and I can't figure out what he did unless he's just a friend or a, a person who was on the phone giving ideas or something. But yeah, that's really neat that he's just got his feelers out in different things in relation to that same kind of movie or well, not movie, but story kind of thing. Right, right. Yeah, I saw that. I'm, I'm not sure what his connection uh, really was to The Void, but um, yeah, that was another film that's a, a lot like this one in a way that's just very visually uh, visually stimulating. But All right, well, we've already been recording for a minute. Uh, let me just do a, a proper intro. Wow. I'll introduce both of you, and um, we'll just, hell, I might even use a clip of that later on towards the end. But I'll properly introduce everybody, and then we'll get rolling on Mandy. Let me get one last sip of beer here, and I'll be ready to go. All right, folks, welcome to Cinema Degeneration. This is the show, This Is Your Brain on Film. This is our second episode, and I'd like to welcome my two guest hosts this week uh, for this evening's show. Daniel Goad and Jerry Reeves, guys, welcome to the show. And this is a, a little, almost a little family reunion, ain't it? Yeah. We oh, haven't. That, uh, that was Jerry, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Jerry the Demon and Daniel Goad, our, our resident sound guy from Hell's Bells. I'll double down on that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's great having us. <laughs> us together you know it's been almost a year and a half since uh we were all well even if we're just virtually together but it's it's nice to kind of group us all together after having not seen each other or talked to to one another in a year and a half almost yeah especially with how 2020 has been going so yes very very good to to be here and talk to you too yeah, 2020 has not been kind. Uh, 2020 I, that m- makes you long for the days of 2019, and I never thought I'd say that. But mm. <laughs> though this evening, what brings us together today is something a little psychedelic, a little tripodelic, and uh, fucked upadelic, as I like to call it. <laughs> this movie that we are doing tonight is from uh, Panos Cosmatos Mandy. Uh, it's from 2018. 
I will read a quick IMDb synopsis for those of you who, ha- who haven't seen it. And if you haven't seen it, uh, stop this podcast right now. Watch it and come back because you're going to have a lot of spoilers. And this is not a movie you want to go into uh, being spoiled. Uh, this is an intense film and you don't want to miss the ride. But no. the IMDb synopsis goes as this. Taking place in 1983, Red Miller is a lumberjack who lives in a secluded cabin in the woods. His artist girlfriend, Mandy, spends her days reading fantasy paperbacks. And then one day, she catches the eye of a crazed cult leader who conjures up a group of motorcycle-riding demons to kidnap her. Red, armed with a crossbow and custom axe, stops at nothing to get her back, leaving leaving a bloody, brutal pile of bodies in his wake. And that's... Almost spot on. I have a couple little problems with that synopsis. Uh, they don't really kidnap her. They just uh, outright do bad things. Uh, we'll get right into the gist of the film. I'll I'll pose the questions uh, one at a time. We, uh, just also, so we don't... also, hmm? there's there is chainsaws in this movie. Oh, there is chainsaws, and then there is a mega. Remember. Chainsaw. You can never get enough chainsaws. Nope. I was I was thoroughly happy with this, with the chainsaws in this movie. Well, that that being said, I've got to ask, what did you think of the chainsaw fight scene, Jerry? When Red pulls out his chainsaw and goes after one of the uh, uh, black skulls, and then that guy pulls out a chainsaw that's even that's that's every bit as big as he is. It's like a seven footer. I mean, I was like, this, this this has to happen. This is beautiful. Chainsaw fight. I mean, that's, that's perfect. Yeah, you don't see many uh, chainsaw duels anymore. Not fights, no, no. You have plenty of one-ways, but never the two-ways. They're never back and forth. I thought the scene, to me, uh, screamed Phantasm 2 when Reggie pulls out his chainsaw and then the ghoul pulls out an even bigger chainsaw and they duel it, it, it scream phantasm too. And I'm perfectly okay with that. Cause that's one of my favorite movies as well. There's a lot of little, uh, winks and nods and odes to other horror movies in this, uh, in this flick. Yeah. There's a little bit, you know, to the little kind of Rosemary's baby, Charles Manson. You got a little Friday the 13th nod and references, I, I know both of you had not seen this film until I had brought it to uh, your attention to do for this show. I had seen it at a midnight showing, which is the perfect way to watch this movie. I saw it at the art theater that uh, was run by our mutual, one of our mutual friends, Jesse Seats. Uh, she was helping run the art theater here in Champaign, Illinois, and they had a couple week run where they showed Mandy. And I was extremely happy to get to see it on the big screen front row the way it needs to be. Um, it was with a really great crowd. It was a really grindhousey kind of crowd. Everybody was uh, hooting, hooting and hollering and having a really good time with it because while it's a very dark film, it's a very fun film, I think. And I'd like to get uh, first impressions. I'll, I'll go with you first, Jerry, and then go with you, Dan. Um, what were your first impressions with the film as it started rolling and started going because it is a very visually stimulating film. So I'm interested, uh, what your first impressions were. Well, the, uh, let me, uh, I think, I think I actually took some type of notes 
Oh, I know, right? I have three pages of notes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I might not have got that many, but uh, I'm, I enjoyed the movie. I thought it was great uh, visually when it first started out. You see, you get to see the pretty green trees. I, I do have to have to mention that. And, it's uh, one of the few thought, uh, pretty shots in the in the movie. Well, they're all very pretty shots, but it's the it's one of the few moments of tranquility in the film. Yeah, and I, I hate to say this, but Nick is not a logger. You could tell from the way he was cutting that log. <laughs> He was he was uncomfortable, and, and I that was strange to see him like that. So, yeah, I kind of I, I felt that myself a little bit. <laughs> Everything else seemed very comfortable. A lot of the crazy things that he was doing that he'll do later on in the film, but I, I felt like yeah, him at that moment as a logger, I'm just like, oh, you can tell this is not comfortable territory for him. Yeah. So that that was that, that was strange, but the 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 first few scenes are just visually great, in my opinion. It does really rope you in that way, doesn't it? It it kind of grabs you by the boo boo and just doesn't let go. Mm-mm. And Dan, first impressions. Well, with my first impressions, I was actually afraid of the movie because I I did as much as I could to not get anything spoiled. I didn't want to look at any promotional photos. I knew that I was going to enjoy the film after the first trailer. Uh, I like the majority of what Nicolas Cage puts out. I like his energy. I like his professionalism, even though some of his stuff is silly and dumb. He he takes his job very seriously and he he enjoys what he does, and that that helps the audience enjoy it as well. But I was I was really afraid of first impressions until I started like seeing the the credit role for some of the cast. Like I I didn't know that um, Richard Brake was in it. I got really surprised at that. But then I, I was ultimately disappointed with just the little amount of time he was in the film. And then Bill Duke, I honestly didn't even think he was acting anymore. It was just you know it it started out really really good just off of reading, and then the amount of just artistic direction of the film put put you in kind of like a tranquil state just to to copy that word you you mentioned but i was really afraid of um what kind of direction the film was going to take but I, i was i was worried that the like most of the time in cinema like the trailer um gives too much away and i was really thankful just like when we were talking about the chance chainsaw scenes um it it didn't ruin that moment like you knew it was coming and it was the uh, the excitement of that scene coming to fruition like it didn't get cut or you know it's one of those parts of a trailer where it never is actually in the film oh and yeah it was just really good so first impressions it was a, a roller coaster uh, lead up until going over that first hump. So it was good. Did, can can I add to something oh, on that, Daniel? Uh, Elijah Wood was a producer. Yes, I did not know uh, that and, as well and it until threw his name me came. off, and I was like, "Whoa, wait a minute!" Well, I actually looked at it. And he's I was been like, doing a lot, lot of horror. See, that's what I would do. Like, if if you had the connections, some money. 
you know, you could put it to projects that maybe you don't want to star in or you don't want to have your face in, but your name could be on it. Like, that's like the perfect thing to do. But yeah, I, I didn't even think it was the real Elijah Wood. I thought it was like someone with the same name until I looked it up and I was like, hey, that's cool. Yeah, I, had, yeah. I did too. I had totally forgotten it. I, I own it. I've seen it a few times, saw it in theaters, but I forgot that he was attached to it and I did a little studying up and he was actually pretty integral in getting Nicholas Cage to do the film. Uh, Cage had met with Panos once to, uh, and uh, they wanted him to play Jeremiah Sands first. And he really wasn't interested in that and he didn't feel he was right for red. So the movie still kind of fell in limbo for, I think it was a year, year and a half. And then when Elijah Wood came on as producer, he, put the two of them back together and got a meeting going and just, they kind of got a little bit deeper into it about the, you know, the, the, the layers to red and um, kind of the old world versus the new world. See, and, that works. I, I wouldn't have enjoyed Nicholas Cage as Jeremiah. I mean, that would have completely unbalanced the whole thing because even if you don't like Nicholas Cage's acting style, it's really hard to just hate him. So like you you really need an antagonist that you can just look at and just hate. And honestly, from the original trailer, I thought that was Sean Penn because his face looks really similar to him. And I was like, oh, he's acting, but it's not. It's a different dude. <laughs> oh, you mean it's Jeremiah Sand? Yeah, his name yeah. is Linus Roche or Roche. Roche. But yeah, from yeah. that initial trailer when his hair is down, um, I was just like, that looks a lot like Sean Penn, but it's not. Yeah, yeah, he does a little bit. I can see that. And speaking of hating your villains and, you know, and being, having, and being invested in, you know, properly liking your hero and hating your villain, let's talk, talk a little bit about Jeremiah Sand and Linus Roche, uh, Roche who plays him. He is very effective. I didn't know who he was. I hadn't known, hadn't, hadn't known of him before this film, and I've sought, sought out some more of his stuff since. I didn't actually know. I, I had seen him in a couple films, but didn't realize that I had seen him. I didn't realize that he was in Batman Begins, uh, Chronicles of Riddick, which I have both seen both. Not huge fans of, of both of those, but you know, I, I, I re realize now that he was in those. He is super effective as Jeremiah Sand. Uh, just the type of despicable, super religious zealot cult leader type that I just despise as much on film as I do in real life. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he, he was just the type of despicable character that, you know, it's like a Darth Vader. He's the, he's the man you love to hate. Yeah, I didn't think he had big enough glasses, though, to be a cult leader, for one. <laughs> but he had a small enough penis. He had <laughs> oh, my Lord, what was up with that? See, and that's, that's the like, other thing. I'm glad you brought that up, because like, there's not what? a lot of full frontal male nudity. It's becoming more and more popular, and it's cool to see. But it's just very still shocking. Like it's it's yeah, a very I mean, weird I, thing to watch. I like mean, when I watch Midsummer, I'm just like, oh, well, that's a dick. And then I, like, I turn you know, on porn. I know what I'm getting into. I turned this on. I was like, that is not what I was expecting. But okay, here we go. <laughs> I should have brought my mashed potatoes if I knew it was that kind of film. 
If it's going to be that kind of party, he's going to stick your dick in the mashed potatoes. <laughs> you know what? You know what's funny is uh, the night before I watched Mandy for this, I watched uh, Tennessee Gothic, and that had f- full frontal male nudity as well. So I got that two nights in a row. So very so life, life is complete now. It's an Short adjective I can't think of. The dreams. <laughs> but uh, to comment on Jeremiah, I actually, I, I hate the character. So I, I do agree. A religious zealot already puts a stamp on it of just uh, it, you just want an arrow in their throat or something like that. But I th- I think it was a very conscious effort of whoever took more credit with writing his character. Um, I I like I like enemies or or main big baddies that have like a frail sense of self worth. Like yes, yes, there's a lot of bravado and a what's the word uh, machismo of like being that yeah. Charles Manson character. But at the end, and again, spoilers, you already warned it, but like at the end, I really do. It makes me like the character more when they realize that if they look in themselves in the mirror, they don't believe all the things that they say. It's just, it's a bunch of BS. So you I, have to hype yourself up when you're like that. Exactly. Like it's super easy just to make an evil character evil 100%. Like full stop. You don't have to have any transgressions of what you've done. Uh, you don't have any failings with looking at yourself. But it's really neat to have like a, a small inch of a person just not <laughs> leaving everything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Interesting choice of words there, sir. <laughs> But I agree. There has to be that moment, even if it's as brief as it is in Mandy, where they realize they're full of shit and they they just crumble, you know, and that definitely happens. Uh, Let's get into more instead of the characters, the the kind of the, the, the story of the film. It's very dreamlike. It's very lucid storytelling. You never quite. You know, you never quite feels like reality. It always feels very dreamlike. But you know, the the story starts off with Red and his his girlfriend Mandy, the titular character of the film, the namesake of the film, and they're both you can tell very fragile, broken type people. You can tell before tragedy strikes that Red already seems a very broken man. Uh, Fragile in a, in a way, even though he's, you know, a big brooding kind of tough guy, but his world hinged on one thing. It hinged on Mandy. She was his angel, his kind of saving grace. She was his everything. He was in a way, I think, like a very, he was like a cracked egg, like a like an egg with a cracked shell at the beginning. And then someone crushes him and breaks the yolk. If that makes sense. Of falling I don't, I don't, down. <laughs> I don't know if either of y'all actually like really picked up on it, but did you appreciate the lack of exposition? Like you didn't need to know how they met. You didn't need to know all the dates they went on, what their favorite foods were. You like just most knew they foods. were in love. That's all you need. Like I, I was so happy. And they, they didn't, they, they didn't even say it because I'm at this part right here where, where it first shows them together, just laying in bed talking. Yeah. Cause I'm having, so. I'm running it right now in the background and, yeah, it's not like a foreign it. concept to have a relationship. Like it was and just you can just straight tell. You well, can just you know, tell you can, these two have that connection. 
you, you can tell that their world is each other. Yeah. You can tell they're very much in love, just the way they talk to each other. Uh, when Red comes home, when Nicolas Cage first comes to the house after his uh, long day at work as a, a pseudo logger, <laughs> and he comes home <laughs> and he's like, knock, knock, well, who's there? And you go, Eric Estrada, who? Eric Estrada from oh. Chips. You it can does. tell it was, you know, almost like an inside joke, kind of a wink, wink, nudge, nudge that, you know, they only. That's something uh, we don't know about. But they know about, but, yeah, and, but, as but we all know, do, you know, yeah, but you know that they know every, every one of us is in a relationship here. We all have those little, you know, little things that we say to our, our beloved that they're the only ones that's going to get, but they're the only one that needs to get it. And I love that they have that. And you're right, Daniel, you know, they don't really, you know, they don't have mounds of exposition like, oh, we've been together 18 years. And, oh, we met on St. Patrick's Day and uh, we, we shared schnitzel, you know. Exactly. At a it's bonfire, the same you know? thing with the demon juice or just, you know, where the other people come from. It's just you don't need it. It's just details that just mess up the story and just make it bloated. And right. The, the movie really just benefits the rest of the way for not having just to uh, concentrate on those small things when there's other neat things to concentrate on. Can, 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 I, can we concentrate on the neat things that is this lady's eyeballs? Oh, she has the most. Oh, Andrea Riseborough as Mandy is amazing. She has the most expressive eyes, the most beautiful eyes. It just. And most haunting eyes. It yeah. just all rolled into they one. Scared me. They scared me. I wanted to ball up. They just looking at my soul, man. Looking at my yes. soul. I felt like she was looking directly into my soul a few times. We'll get into the meat of the story here. It, it's basically a chance encounter. Mandy's just walking down the road and the cult happens to pass by in their van. They just see her and Jeremiah Sand just decides he has to have her he just makes that moment you know uh, and you just know bad things are going to happen you don't know quite how bad it's going to get but you can probably imagine how bad it's going to get <laughs> you know and i love the title cards that pop up at uh, a couple of various points in the movie when you're being introduced to certain characters in certain uh, portions of the film. And the title card that comes up is the children of the new dawn, which is the cult that See, say it, it was like chapters uh, of a book. Yes. I mean, it, it's funny that like the title card for the movie is like an hour in and I are yeah. like, Oh, you know, they finally show the name of the movie. So yeah, yeah it's it it really cool. five minutes in. It was 75 minutes in when they show the title card. I don't think any movie has had the balls to do that. <laughs> But this group, the, the children of the New Dawn, are just fucking creeps all around. They're very, it has a very Manson family type uh, feeling to it. And let's face it, you know, that this, this is a pretty much, uh, I guess if you want to break it down, it could be broke down. And you could say that it's a revenge thriller. But that's really only a portion of the film. It's more of a, it's Red's trip through hell. Uh, I mean, when they show up at at the well, when Marlene, the Marlene character, which is supposed to be Sands' kind of lover or jilted lover, so to speak, when she first shows up at uh, Mandy's shop that she runs, 
I just get chills down my spine because having seen it already, I already know what's coming. But that first time, even I got a chill in my spine when she just looks at her and she's like, oh, be seeing you later. And just like, oh, no, you don't want to be seeing this motherfucker later. <laughs> Not yeah. at all. And you got that creepy vibe. No, 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 no. I'm good. Later. But the, this, uh, this is the scene that, that gets to me uh, when they actually invade Red and Mandy's home. They, they, not, they knock out Red. They tie him up with barbed wire, uh, which is tied around his face, tied around his hand. So he's incapacitated. And, you know, their thing is that they're going to kind of, uh, how can I say, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Indoctrinate. Yeah, that's actually the exact word I, w- I was looking for. They want to indoctrinate Mandy. So they... Drop some liquid LSD into her eyes, and maybe one of you. Was, but what was that? That that bug? There was some sort of bug that looked like a hornet had it sex was a, with a it scorpion. Was a murder, murder hornet. See, I think, I think at that point, when when the trauma happens, I, I think that it starts losing its grasp on, like like full on reality. Like I, I, I know there's bugs that are that big and I know that a lot of the stuff after that point happen, that are very hyperbole. Like it's very exaggerated and, um, super extreme. Like we won't even mention that, you know, the, the wound of the knife in Nicholas's side was never mentioned again. He never had yeah. pain after that fact, whatever. But like, I've, I've, that wound would have killed him. Yeah. But like, there's a few there's a few theories and stuff of this kind of movie of like what liberties it took at a certain point of like did it really happen or was it just some sort of like fever dream episode but yeah that bug thing was a very like I immediately thought of the matrix and just mm-hmm. just like very odd but yeah they, but, but they they fuck her up they they get mandy under the influence with the liquid lsd and then they sting her with that scorpion murder hornet tick like wasp whatever the hell it was and they just called i call this the cherry on top and i'm like oh fuck like this is going to get insane but they they're going to indoctrinate her and sands gives this big speech Full of bravado, self-absorbed bullshit. He puts on his album like he's trying to impress her, like some beatnik type guy with with a acoustic guitar. Like, listen to my song that I wrote about myself. And what does Mandy do? She laughs in his face, or pur- pretty much laughs at his dick because he does drop his ceremonial robe. He's standing there completely full frontal nude in front of her. And she just laughs at him. And his poor little man, you know, his poor little ego. I think ego she would have been more was... into him if she would have just did the Jerry and tucked it and, you know, been like, what's up, Buffalo Bill, bitches? <laughs> oh, geez. oh, Jerry the Right, everybody? Right? Yeah, yep. Okay. If he did a tuck job, maybe, maybe she would have been a little bit too aghast with horror to, to laugh. Yeah, I don't think it's funny, yo. I want to be with you. What's up? You made me laugh. But I don't. I don't think it would have saved her. It wouldn't have saved no. her at all. Because yeah, 
you know, like I said, uh, poor little Jeremiah's fragile ego was just crushed because she laughs at his music, laughs at his religion, and laughs at his small dick. So they do pretty much the unthinkable. They they torture Red a little bit, and they uh, mortally wound him. They or they give him a wound that should have been a mortal wound. Uh, but it just makes him more angry or more pissed off. But I mean, they sacrifice Mandy in front of him and pretty much as a baptism by fire. And I think there was even a line, uh, I can't remember. And he's like the darkest of horrors burn brightly. Look how bright she burns or something. Uh, No, I was like, Whoa, what? See, not only was that a cool scene, like it looked awesome, but yeah, very visually intense. It's a it's another part of the film I appreciate that it didn't draw that out. Like that was a very I don't want to say realistic, but that shit like that does happen. But it was like it was a, a point blank immediate reaction. Not half of the movie is Nicholas running after them and doing this whole cat and mouse thing. Like it was like, nope, that's she insulted me, she's dead, boom, stab the dude. Like, to me, that, like, most evil people in movies, they're stupid. They don't make good decisions, and they, like, leave the protagonist alive. But he should have died. That's one of those things where I don't fully know if the movie is intending that Nicholas survive after that. And, like, he's actually going to hell to fight. Like, the whole Dante's Inferno kind of thing of he did die in the barbed wire, and the journey after was his... I don't know, soul fighting for something. I don't know. It it goes into a lot of poetic bullshit, like in my mind. I'm like, what's real? Right, right. It's like it's it's like halfway halfway between a dream and a nightmare. It's the best way to describe it. Because right. everything that everything that leads up to this point is very much a dream, and everything from this point on is very much a nightmare. And but it, it looks cool. And oh, that they have the great effects and. Even some drawings and cartoon style stuff or anime. I actually style really stuff. enjoyed that. I'm glad and, you brought that up. And I was like, here, yeah. "Wow, that's that that was really cool." But I, I did like the fact that the the dude with the small dig did drive off in a lifted F two fifty truck. <laughs> For the rest of this podcast, can we just call him Small Dick? Like, just not even call him by small his dick. name. Yeah, small dick. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> that that that's like doing your your first gig out. You do a herpes commercial. <laughs> on national NFL TV, you know. Oh, damn! You do herpes, dude, ain't you? Yeah, for the rest of his life, poor feller. But oh, I'm, I might I interject. I gotta say one thing, and it's silly as hell. Um, anybody else have any thoughts on what the fuck was up with the Cheddar Goblin? Anybody anybody have a thought on Cheddar Goblin, or was that just something that they decided to do as a, a goof and it worked? See, that's one of those things. I didn't know who was fully behind this until I started doing research. So Casper Kelly was the co-writer of this, and he's credited as the Cheddar Goblin in the film. And this dude wrote for Aqua Teen Hunger Force, for Squidbillies, Too Many Cooks. He, he created Stroker and Hoop. This dude literally is just like weird toilet humor uh, kind of uh, intellectual of that round. So yeah, I think it was just a, a mutual 
handshake agreement of yeah that can be in the film because after at this point it's just we're going crazy so yeah that was very odd because it was a weird transition after they burn mandy alive in front of red and let's face it that is one of the most heartbreaking scenes to watch there's that super long take of her just burning in the sleeping bag after they douse it with gasoline and set her on fire and Red's just watching, and it's such a long shot of him just in just the most agonizing torment that I think I've ever seen a, a human being uh, put through on film, well, at least one of the most agonizing scenes. I and guarantee so that scene took all night to film. Oh, I have no doubt. I have no doubt that was a hard, hard, hard scene, and it took some long hours to do. But then they okay. followed it up. They followed up with him, you know, getting free, tearing his hands up really badly to get out of the, 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 the barbed wire and whatnot. But he gets free after they leave and he goes into the house. The TV's still running and the Cheddar Gar- Goblin commercial is on. And I just thought that was such a weird take because even uh, Red, you know, Nicolas Cage is watching it. And I think he's having the same thought we are like, what, what, what in the hell? What's going on, damn Cheddar Goblin? But. Uh, I digress because the scene that comes up next, I, I want to discuss the scene in, in depth, hopefully, with you guys. I am a, f- a fan of Nicolas Cage. I've always been a huge fan of his. I know it's uh, it seems to be the thing to knock on Nicolas Cage in his later career, but he has had some amazing films all throughout his career. He is one of he's an uh, American treasure as an as an actor. That's my opinion. I don't care what anybody else thinks. It seems to be cool to kind of hate on him. But this scene for days. <laughs> good, good face-off reference, sir. Uh-huh. But, uh, the scene where he goes into the house, he he goes in into his his bathroom. He's just there in his tidy whities and that tiger T-shirt, and uh-huh. you know it's so like intense. The the range of emotions that he goes through in about ninety seconds. He just takes a bottle of booze and just starts chugging it. And he cries, he chugs, and he screams. He chugs, and he gets angry. He he chugs more vodka, he and then he laughs, and then he cries. He collapses, and, and then at the very end, you just see a look come over his face like he finally understands, like, okay, this is where I'm going. This is what I'm going to do. I'm. You can tell just by a simple look on his face that, He's going to kill each and every one of these people, even if it means the death of him. And it's one of my favorite scenes from not just this movie, but from any movie. And I, you know, I, I don't know how you guys feel about it. Um, you know, any thoughts on on this in, intense scene we had here? I think Cage knew that. I think when they were planning that out, especially because it was a, a handheld scene, like he almost hits the camera operator in one part of it. But yes. like I, I think they knew that that was the uh, the linchpin of the film because he had to have an emotional turning point. Now, number one, again, he's suffering from a a fatal knife wound, and the liquor is going all over his hands, the cuts in his mouth, like all the other shit that he has to like uh, focus on when he's acting. Yeah, I really enjoyed this. Plus, the stark orange color, like it's such a uh, a cut out of the film in the the lead up in the color palette of really the whole film but like it's such a a specifically opposite color palette from almost everything else 
So I, th- I think they knew how important that scene was. And again, I'm just curious how long it took. I want to know how long people were on the set to just watch him do that over and over again. Or if it was just two takes, like knowing that he's that crazy as is that he would just find something to focus on and then just go ape shit and everyone be like, all right, it's dinner, dinner time. I got it. My question is, did, did, did they, did they take the emotion from like, immediately from outside and bring that in that's a good question like because like how many days I, because span I, I me personally i did a scene with some people down here in alabama that it was the last scene of the night and they had me get get down and dirty crying and i was done after that one scene i if i if I would have had to have taken it if it was going to have to be that same amount of motion, if not greater. I would have had to continue that right away. Yeah, that does kind of make me makes me wonder with the scheduling of things. And they're like, "Listen, we'll put these two scenes back to back. We'll do these in one day, that way you can uh, <laughs> recover the next day." At least I know <laughs> I, I I would need to recover. Jerry, that's that's a good question. That's that's the questions I wish interviewers would ask rather than the like the dumb stuff that they usually do. That's that's a good question. I what mean, to because Nick, to me, Nick Cage would be up there with Denzel for me if 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 he had if he had the power to cut it on and off in the same day. Maybe they did the same, you know, uh, two different takes on the same day. You know, and I'm like. How do you cut it on and off like that as the actor part of me? Now, I know y'all see it from a different, you see it as from writer and Daniel, you see it from the picture of it. But I'm saying like, how do, what emotion does that take? I mean, it's draining. Yeah. And then, I mean, you can see it. That's, so, that's one of those things. Like, I love that it didn't cut. Like there was a specific intention of not cutting away and it was, all of it was just done on purpose. I really enjoyed that scene, but yeah, I, I would be curious to know. Like, how many I would have loved to have done that. And it would have had to be one for me. It would have had to been from the, the moment I'm tied up to I'm screaming and I run over there and play in the ashes. And by this point, I'm to that point. I am to that point in real life to where I'm picturing that's, that's my wife. That's my sister. That's my mother. That's my grandmother, you know, and then you're 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 just like inside your head just blowing up and and then you stop. No, I, I don't see him doing it. I see him continue doing it. Let's go to the next scene automatically. Just bust yeah. right in a room. We'll have right. the camera Let's set up and you just do what level. you got to do and we'll work off of it. Because didn't you say it was like a handheld scene, Daniel? Yeah, because you can tell that the the camera starts pushing in, which you can do in post, or you can you can have a focus puller do that. But the way that it's pushing in at an abnormal rate, and then it's it's not choreographed because Nick does a certain movement, and he almost either elbows or shoulder checks the front of the camera. And I don't know how you know we don't know how zoomed in it is, but like uh, both. Constance and I uh, were, were watching it and it was like, oh, like he almost hit the camera guy. But that mm-hmm. take was so good that they kept it rather than, you know, trying to do it again. So, yeah, I would See, love that's why. Is it one long, one long take? I mean, 
I don't yeah. know. I'd love I'd love that kind of behind the scenes knowledge. Like stuff like that usually is kept under lock and key. Kind of like this stuff with with Joaquin and the Joker behind the scenes stuff like some of it was for promo and for advertising, but he really didn't like a lot of it being showed because that was that was his method, that was his process of of getting yeah. into that I would like just a two-hour block of Nicolas Cage getting into character. I would watch the shit out of that. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'd watch hours of that. It'd be an entertaining movie just in and of itself. Or just bloopers. Like, not even bloopers, like failed takes. Like, stuff the editor didn't want to use just because it didn't fit with timing. Like, like that's the stuff, as just a a lover of film, that I would just love to watch. Just, like, snippets of shit that was put on the cutting room floor. Like, that would entertain me for hours. Like, I would love to see an alternate take of that. Like, let's just say they did three takes of that. Even if the other two were not good, I would love just to see what Cage pulled out. You know, no pun intended, what he pulled out emotionally, you know, alternative takes. But I don't know that French word. (laughs) That brings up, um, I hate to... uh, go off skew like you'll, you'll reel me in, in a second but the it reminds me of a scene or not a scene but behind the scenes to tropic thunder and they had so much b-roll of stuff that couldn't be used because they kept being spontaneous and ad-libbing certain scenes and uh like robert downey jr was just going and going and going it's like they just had gigs and gigs of media that just never made it into the movie. And it's just like stuff like this where it's such a compact production. Like there's not a lot of set pieces. It's basically it happens in maybe six locations. Uh, yeah. The most ornate really being the house. Um, most of it, I it, it seems like all of their budget went to lights and gels and fog machines and stuff to make it look really atmospheric. But um like it, it just makes you wonder a lot of had that process. Well, Panos has such a visual way of story storytelling. You know what goes into just crafting one shot, let alone an entire film on one of his shoots. I can maybe now kind of understand why it takes him eight years to make a movie. Like you said, he's probably a perfectionist. And I was describing this, and Patty was watching it with me uh, earlier t- today when I you know, was reviewing it. Um, I describe it as the movie looks like a painting. Every frame, every shot, every angle is so perfectly composited and framed and lit and just colored and set and everything. It's just like every frame is a perfect little painting. You could take a film cell from any one scene and frame it. Yeah. And there's barely any, I don't want to use the word normal too much, but like there's, there's like no normal color palette other than like maybe five scenes. Everything else is super contrast and saturated and vibrant and, it works like it works for the film. Well, I learned of a new term that I had never uh, heard of before when I was doing some investigating on the film and Panos's uh, visual style. He uses something called panaflares, which I had never heard of before, which is a process of you, you take LED lights and you shine them and aim them into the camera lens to get those that soft kind of 
you know, soft, uh, mushy, kind of milky kind of look, you know, that the movie has at certain points where everything looks soft and dreamlike. I had no idea of doing that. I made notes and I'm like, I'm going to investigate this for future filmmaking. It's a interesting style, but that's really cool. I see. I noticed that they did that with like the Blade Runner stuff with Nicolas Cage's eyes after she was burned because like we immediately saw that. and I was like, Oh, that's a really neat effect. But yeah, I didn't know that they went that intently on um, that kind of technique for the actual lens or the actual camera itself rather than everything in front of it oh yeah it's a uh, very intricate I'm, I'm sure panos is a uh, a madman on set and i mean that in a good way like a stanley cooper kind of way he's probably somebody who is very mad but very brilliant and uh, from the interviews i've read with him and i've seen him do uh, uh yeah uh, he's somebody whose mind i would love to to, to pick a little bit I knew I knew from the opening, the very opening of, of the movie where the title card comes up and I even wrote it down. You know, you're in for a heavy metal kind of movie when it says, when I die, bury me deep, lay two speakers at my feet, wrap some speakers around my head and rock and roll me when I'm dead. And yeah, I saw that. that's at the very first. Yeah, that's the very opening of the film. Did, yeah. did either either one of y'all watch heavy metal? The, the movie animated. heavy metal? Yeah. Oh, yes. Not love recently. it. Love that. So, like, for the last 15 years, it's been rumored to actually have a live action. I would totally want him to direct or at least have some sort of um, um, commentary into it. Because if, it, if it's ever made, it needs to kind of look like this. It needs to have an aesthetic of, of Hellraiser and this color palette and just, like, not being tied down with what you think reality in a movie should be but yeah when i when i read that quote i was like yep this is going to be cool yeah yeah and let's face it the rest of the movie from here on out is complete utter mayhem uh red goes to visit um a friend of his who's played by bill duke and and much like you daniel I hadn't seen Bill Duke in anything in a long time. I thought he was just producing and directing, but to see him like pop up in it that first time when I saw it, I was so excited because I, you know, I know him from things like uh, "Don't Be a Menace to so- or Menace to Society." Uh, I almost said "Don't Be a Menace to South Central" while drinking your juice in the hood, but that's a movie yeah. for another time. But uh, "Menace to Society," "Predator," uh, "Commando," you know. And he was great. Uh, I think his character's name was Carruthers. And and that's when you kind of find out the very little bit that you find out about Red. You don't really find out much about him. We don't really ever know much about Red or Mandy, other than they are a couple very much in love. And now we find out that Red quite possibly had a history where he was somebody maybe kind of like a John Wick. Somebody who had a history doing bad things to worse people. See, I was I was hoping you would bring that up. I actually wanted to pick your brain on this as as a writer. Do you, hmm. do you like it where you you can leave just little breadcrumbs for the audience or the viewer to to pick up on, and you can enjoy not really loading down with either a skill set or showing certain things like you could just 
assume and then leaving that mystery as the the fun point to where you don't really have any limitations as far as your hero goes. Like, did you enjoy um, that part of the 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 story makeup? Oh, immensely! I love it when a story leaves that up open to interpretation. Because you know, you're, you're, it's, it's not like in the movie. I'm like, now I like the John Wick movies. I just use that as a quick reference. I mean, like. It's always expounded upon a who John Wick is. He's the Baba Yaga. He's the bad motherfucker. You know, everybody's afraid of him. But you don't get that with Red. You Imagine just, you if Nicolas Cage was John Wick and Keanu Reeves was Red. Oh. Well, alternate reality. Uh, can, 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 can I make a comparison to here? Uh, that once touched on? Logan and Wolverine. Yeah. There's a little bit of that to it. There's he, a little he, bit he of that. In he hasn't died. We don't know why he's so in love with her. Same thing that Logan had it and was in love with redheads. Don't know why. Uh, he was a logger. Uh, he didn't die when he got stabbed. Didn't show him healing, but he didn't die. Yeah, it's true. It, it's a good kind of correlation there. Uh, I'm sorry. It just makes no, me. No, think it, it's oh, okay. I think um, to answer your question, Daniel, and then I'll answer your question. Here, um, I, I I like from a writer's standpoint that they leave it open, um, you know, because my interpretation of it is that this is my backstory for Red, and this is where I went with it, where my mind goes. I think he was an ex-soldier, possibly like you know, a Navy SEAL, a Green Beret, which would. Uh, uh, explain his proficiency with hand-to-hand -hand combat, with sharp-edged weapons. You know, he doesn't really use guns, you know, so much in, in the movie. You know, he used chainsaws, that weird battle axe that is a very Celtic-like symbol that looks like something that, uh, <laughs> like a Klingon would have made from uh, Star oh, Trek. Yeah. But he forges it from, you know, he... he Pours it and forges it and hammers it. Oh my God, it's great. But I, I love it. I think I think that he that's part of why he was a broken man at the beginning. He might have been somebody who saw some action overseas. He saw some war. Maybe did some things he wasn't so proud of, and that's why he kind of hung up his hat and became a logger and found another another way to live and a means of living through his relationship with Mandy. And As a lot of people would have done coming out of that, what, Vietnam age at that time of period. Yeah, because, yeah, with it taking place in 83, that would have been, uh, yeah, that would have been about that time. So, yeah, I think he was a vet. And even though they don't come out and say it, maybe that, maybe they never intended it that way. But that's where I went with it, uh, you know, uh, in my mind. I'm not sure where you went with it or if you came up with the backstory. But as a writer, I... I make up backstories for every character that I write and every character that I see, you know, whether or not it jives with when anybody else is thinking remains to be seen. And what was your question, Jerry? I got, I got so off, off track with the writing angle of things. I don't, I don't remember. Well, well, I probably agreed with you anyway, whatever it was. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't hold questions too long like this right now. <laughs> yeah, when I try to think of uh, two or three things uh, at the same time, I lose one of them. Oh, yeah. You ripped my shirt. You ripped my shirt. It was my favorite <laughs> shirt. That was my favorite part of the movie. So I, for those who are just listening, I just put it in the chat of just a 
two quotes from the film. I, I love that the movie had such an exclamation mark of horror and sadness that turned the, I guess just it ramped the speed up of, of the plot of this revenge um, thriller or drama, whatever genre you want to put it in. But like the levity and comedy that Nicolas Cage has, I think is why I enjoy him so much. Like you, you take him seriously, but at what point does it just become laughter? Like that whole, Oh, it's just such a viscerally violent film. Like I, it just, it, it hit, it ticked all the right boxes, but yeah, I just like that. No matter his delivery, cage is just hilarious. Like he can, he can, be in his own mind and just be like, I'm, this is the most serious that I've ever been. I've I spent hours working into this, this attitude and this mood, but people behind the camera were probably funny. still laughing. Yep. Going to be funny no matter what, you know, just him as simple as it was just standing there after the, the carnage of watching Mandy being killed in front of him. And he's watching that, Cheddar Goblin commercial and going back to that again. And he's not seeing a thing. He's just staring and he's got this look on his face to just, you know, it's kind of like I, I want to reference another Cage movie. It's like in Con Air, just like when he says, you know, on any other day, this might seem a little weird. But, you know, he just has this look on his face that just says, yeah, after everything I've seen today, this is not the strangest thing that's been put in front of me. Yeah, he's got that look. Yep, just another day. And let's talk about, at some point we do have to talk about, and it might as well be now, the uh, the Black Skulls. The the cult, Sands, or Mr. Smalldick, uh, <laughs> has a group of demons, or demonic characters riding around on motorcycles and ATVs that work for him, called the Black Skulls. And they're kind of like, they're his foot soldiers. They're a group of uh, drug traffickers that got a bad batch of LSD psychedelics, and they they were running around crazy. The guy mixed them a bad batch. They tripped on it, and they've never been right since. Carruthers kind of that just sounds like a bad Mad Max sequel that was never picked up. Like it sounds so ridiculous, but it works within the concept of the film. It's just so, just so silly. Well, it's, it sounds like you, you say that right there. That's that little bit, you know, of the black skulls. It sounds like its own movie in and of itself. It doesn't sound like just a mere subplot, you know, but <laughs> But, you know, the, the, these characters and that's where, you know, Richard Brake comes in as the chemist, even though they once again, they never rightly say it. But I believe he was the chemist that made them their quote unquote bad batch that drove them utterly insane. Yeah, I think it and, was alluding pretty heavy to that, especially like that's the thing know, where he, he was pulling out. He was dipping. If you realize if, if you remember, he's dipping and he starts licking his fingers. Yeah, he licks like, his fingers. You, you could have cast anyone else in that role, but I think it was, again, another decision made on purpose of, like, this is a really important character. Maybe not in this specific timeline, but that character was very important to the overall story. I think that's why they went for a character like him, because Richard Brake is just, I mean, a crazy good character actor. Like, I don't think he'll ever be a leading man. It's just, I don't think that his career is 
I don't think he intends to do that, but like he's a very good um, anchor. If DC would him. put him in a Joker movie. Oh, he would. I don't make know. Like a violent, Joker. like the violent, violent Joker. I, Not, I honestly it, wanted him there's to be Carnage. so many different Jokers. Yeah. But he could be that violent Joker. I kind of picture him like the Mark Hamill Joker. He would be like the live-action Mark Hamill Joker with just a little bit more of a violent edge. Yeah. But then, oh, that's another podcast for another day. I could go on and <laughs> on about, about Mark Hamill and the Joker. On a side note, Mark Hamill is the best Joker. Fight me on it. (laughs) (laughs) I I got you back. I got you back. Ain't ain't nobody fighting you on that one. And we did mention the the chainsaw duel, uh, which is pretty much coming up right around the same time as the uh, it it precedes the scene with the chemist, and it's utterly utterly ridiculous. It's another moment of ridiculous in the movie, ridiculousness in the movie, where Nicolas Cage pulls out a chainsaw and he's advancing on one of the the cult members, and you know, and he pulls out that seven foot chainsaw and they have that they have that chainsaw duel. My shorts is bigger than yours. Yeah, yeah, right. And let's let's face it, like anytime I see a chainsaw in a film, especially if I know it's a horror movie and it's going to be used for nefarious purposes, my ass tightens up a little bit. Because you just the thought of, of a chainsaw just, you know, ripping and tearing flesh is just, you know, it's a squirm, squirming kind of moment for me. And when Best he, chainsaw death. Uh, in this movie or best chainsaw no, death? Period. In my In my opinion, but go with yours real quick. Sorry, side note. You know, most memorable is still Franklin in the original chainsaw or... Or uh, uh, part two, uh, chainsaw part two, when uh, Leatherface gets the chainsaw through his midsection and he's fighting Dennis Hopper, and the chainsaw and the chain is still moving, like in his belly, moving out his back. Not necessarily a death scene because, as we all know, Leatherface lives on. But uh, yeah, yeah, I would have to say somewhere between Chainsaw One and Chainsaw Two is hard to choose. Daniel. Well, he actually stole it. I was going to say Chainsaw 2. I mean, there's... there's, I, I find it more that knives are what my brain remembers, like knife kills or shanking scenes. So chainsaws don't really, like, pop out to me. But obviously, y- you have to reference Leatherface, or at least... Um, it, funny enough, when I think of a chainsaw, I think of National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. So my brain doesn't work like most people. So well, <laughs> my, my, I, I go with funny ones, and I went with the smoking aces, where the one dude he oh, falls and yeah. spits on the chainsaw, and he's just like, oh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, I would say. I think Scarface. I think that was actually the first chainsaw death I ever watched. Yeah, ever. yeah. I think that's a lot for I mean that's that's the one for everybody, for a lot of folks. Yeah, cha- uh, Scarface. That's a oof. That's an intense scene right there. Yeah, we wasn't allowed to watch horror movies, but we could watch Scarface. <laughs> <laughs> that was just a, that was just a horror movie filled uh fueled by cocaine. That was uh, a, I mean, was, yeah. Drugs are okay. 
<laughs> I'll make you millions and millions of dollars. You'll get blown in half by a shotgun at the end of the, at the, the world end. is yours, Chico. <laughs> For about 45 minutes. And then that's it. <laughs> well, uh, better getting... to burn out than fade away. Yes, it is. Now, we're getting towards the end of the film, uh, the end of uh, the gist of the film. You know, when Cage, or such a should say, when Red finally gets to the cult members, he makes his way through uh, the uh, uh, the Black Skulls. He and you know, and it's quite a, a track for him to get there. The, the Black Skulls give him a lot of shit. They give him a lot of grief, and it's you know, he he takes out the first one fairly easy, and you think it's going to be you know. Uh, a little bit easier for him, even though his friend Carruthers tells him, like, listen, this isn't going to be easy for you, and you're probably going to die. To which I love the line when Red just says, don't be negative. <laughs> you know, and he's <laughs> the one that should probably be negative at this point. He just watches woman get tortured and burned alive in front of him. But, you know, he's like, don't be negative. But, you know, let's face it, you know, Red goes on this trip, and he's doing everything he can just to make it through. You know, he he fights a couple of these guys, he pulls off a couple of Bruce. There's a Bruce Lee move that he pulls off. That's a little weird neck snap snap. And he does a little Bruce Lee kind of move and motion. That's again, if anybody else would do it, it wouldn't really work, but because it's Nicholas cage. Yeah. See that I thought that too, but I think that goes back into, you know, what methods is he familiar with as a character? And then also what options did he have in that small room. So it's just, you, you never know like what actually they wanted to do, or if that was chosen a few weeks before filming, like it, there's all kinds of like different things. Cause almost every other death is such a ridiculously planned, like it just seems like a spectacle, but there's some stuff in there that's just like, Oh, well maybe there was a problem and that was plan D or something. So, right. Well, you know how it is. You get on set and, you got everything planned. You might even have everything choreographed, but you get in the set, you maybe find that it's too cramped, you know, and too hard to move around and something to, don't feel uh, right. Yeah, and something just ain't jiving. And you know, you you improvise. But that scene is is intense. I mean, Red just takes a pile of cocaine, I'm puts cocaine. it on the edge of, of, of a, edge of a piece of broken glass, just shoves it into his face. I don't know how he didn't cut his nose off. Uh, just shoving like a half a kilo up his nose and you think there's like okay well that's gonna jazz him up no it's not quite enough for red red goes for for what, what do you want to call the, the uh, jar of hypnotic goo that see, he did that's, that's what made me so mad too because it was like obviously he knows what cocaine is he has no problem in taking it but like as a like why would you even drink that? Like in the term of the the film, he never saw that before. He never saw that jar. Like when the yeah, exposition was happening, cover of uh, Alice in Chains. <laughs> but like <laughs> he wasn't a part of any of the conversations about that that juice or whatever. Like he doesn't know what it is, and he just pops the lid off of it and takes a small little thing, and it like gives him powers. I was like, just drink the whole thing. Like you have. You already have whatever made you open it and drink it, you crazy fool. But like, remember when just the black skulls were drinking that? They were drinking that. It was even thicker, yuckier, greener looking stuff, like what Nick drank. But hmm. but Nick or Red didn't see that happen though, right? Like I, yeah, I saw that. I know. Like, I, 
He had no idea what it was. I, I mean, I'm what sure he saying. It was... He's just like, I'm just going to drink this. It's well, he just maybe kerosene. I'll it. get and my again, spleen, this but point, hey, he have bled been... out and died. So maybe he was just like, nah, it can't kill me. I know. Well, that might explain some of the hallucinatory effects that the movie was having uh, or that Nicholas uh, was having because, oh, you know, so that well, wasn't lost, just yeah, loss of blood might <laughs> might make you see all sorts of crazy things. But uh, yeah, you know, he has no idea what it is, and he takes a little, just a dab of it, just a little, and that's all he takes, and it makes him just Superman. And I think if I if I remember correctly, um, that's isn't it shortly after that when the first little animated, the little like cartoonish animated sequence comes into play, or did that happen yeah. before he took that? I think it was right after. Yeah, I think it was right. after. I don't, I don't know exactly, but it it makes it makes sense. And yeah, wasn't her, didn't her face melt like from the fire? Yeah, well, yeah, because she she turns towards him, and as she turns and starts to smile, her face it, just starts to melt. Yeah, and it, it looked apart. like from The Shining. Yeah, it was like a cross between The Shining and the movie you mentioned earlier, Daniel. Heavy Metal. It had a very that animated sequences, yeah. which are very brief, you know, only a few seconds here and there in a couple of scenes, but had a very heavy metal kind of look. Yeah, to them. you got to see drone and boobies too. <laughs> I think those worked though, because it, it kind of shifts gears. Like it's, um, it's like instead of a transition, you can put something like that again, the cheese goblin. It's, it's weird to keep bringing that up, but it's like, it makes you reset or like, scale down the excitement a little bit just to make it more palatable for the next scene. So I, I like some of that. Obviously there's, there's a, a reason that some of this stuff is happening and like it's, it's movies like this that make me think or learn or try and figure out like, obviously it works because of how popular it, it, it is and how it came out. I don't know how much money it made, probably not enough, but it's, it's movies like this that like inspire people who think that their ideas are too weird. It's like, oh, well, no one will give me money to do this because I'm not the same vanilla production company or uh, you know, I'm not following the same cookie-cutter plot. So like, I, I, I hope movies like this don't stop. Uh, yeah. I don't think they're going to. I, I foresee that it's becoming more and more popular. I mean, Nicolas Cage did another one this past year called Color Out of Space by Richard Stanley. Good Got movie. Very, yeah, very good movie. Uh, you know, makes a great double feature with Mandy. If, if you like Nicolas Cage and you like psychotronic films, it makes for a very good double feature. But uh, once again, Color Out of Space, good movie. We may have to cover that he here on the show at some point because I think it definitely falls within the criteria. But I wouldn't mind watching it again. Yeah, it was a, it was a movie I waited uh, 20 plus years for, for Richard Stanley to make another film. So it made me very happy. What also made me very happy, we're getting getting into the finale of the film. I find the ending very satisfying, the final act, the act three of the film. Uh, Red, you know, finds the, the, the cult. He finds them at their little hunt, hunting ground or cultish ground, you know, that where they have their little steeple and everything. Yeah, I'm I wanted to like, comment on that steeple, or at least the construction of that building. Because, again, I mentioned Midsummer earlier. Like, that structure number one is ominous but it's oh, yeah. so pretty like the the geometry of it like it's so pristine 
and unnerving. And you know what? What's even better? They that, actually burned a building. Yeah, that that's one of the other things. Safe. That, that was, was one of the other things I thought of. Fire. Because they, I, I read something where they, they had three or four cameras on that structure, and it took so long for it to burn down because they built it too strong. They literally had to have <laughs> certain regulations because they were filming in it that it had to be safe. And they literally went through so much footage or just battery life to get that. I may be wrong, but I think I read it where it was just detailed of like it took so long. I can't believe it. It was it was gorgeous. It was a gorgeous structure. Yes, it was almost a shame to watch it burn, but it was beautiful to watch. Yeah, uh, that yeah. was a great culmination of, of it, it. Basically, like the movie was building up that that building, and it's burning down at the same time the story's ending. Like it's very very cool. Yeah. And now when, when Red gets to the final couple uh, cult members, you know, uh, he gets to Marlene and she has this moment where she tries to justify her actions. And it's one of my favorite scenes, even though it happens off camera. You don't know what Red does. You don't know what happens. But he gets to where <laughs> he gets to where San Small Dick is at, you know, where he's worshiping in his little little inner temple. And Red shows up by bowling Marlene's head at him like he's trying to bowl a five ten split. It's again, it's so intense, but it's so fucking funny at the same time. You know, it's just one of those like, oh, I know I'm a horrible person because I shouldn't be laughing at this, but I am laughing at this. But no, Marlene's which, which all of them are awful. No, so. I knew this though. What, what about sorry. what about Mar- Marlene's kill, Daniel? The, the, all the characters are awful. Like you shouldn't feel bad about any of them. Like it's just terrible, oh, no. terrible creations written, and it's just like no, decapitate him three or four times, cut up, yeah. cut up the face, just no, just stop it. Yeah, everything yeah. that happens to these people, it's extremely to me, uh, extremely justified. Uh, it's it's characters you don't mind seeing bad things happen to them because each one of them are morally reprehensible people that deserve every bad thing that happens. And let's get to the final moments of the film. Red and and Small Dick Sands. Uh, <laughs> can't help it. I forever know him now as Small Dick Sands. Uh, we'll go get him signed autographs at a con that way. He yeah, signs small dick, please. Small dick He's like, Fuck off, y'all. But don't don't give him a Mandy poster. Give him one of the Chronicles of Riddick posters, and then be like, "Hey, can you sign this small dick?" <laughs> <laughs> I like your thinking. And then he should, then he'd say, "Go to Vin Diesel, please." <laughs> that little. And pity. then you go to get Vin Diesel to sign it, and he's like, "Who's Small Dick Sands?" I don't really get this. I would have done it first, but it was like, no, big dick, sign this. That's Vin Diesel. You're small dick. You sound sick. <laughs> oh, but, oh, God. Okay, real back in, real back. back. <laughs> uh, I usually, you know, you know, in, in a revenge thriller, even a psychotronic one like this, you expect so much uh, with, with Hollywood the way it is, you know, for a big finale a big showdown and we don't quite get that red just shows up and instantly uh jeremiah just starts spouting off all types of scripture and and you know it's this is his place and his temple and his god and you kneel before me before that 
before he did that, we have to note he cried like oh. a bitch. Oh, I'm getting to that. I'm definitely oh, getting to that. Okay. that. That's the the point I was trying to make. You know, he goes from oh puffing his chest and you know screaming bravado. Red doesn't do anything. He just stands there and then and he you know the guy you know he makes him kneel before him and he's holding his head and Red is holding Jeremiah's head in his hands and he just I love watching you know an antagonist lose it. You know going from the all this bravado of I'm the man and I'm your god and you're beneath me to literally going to I'll suck your dick. What do you oh want to do? Like he literally begs and he breaks and there's that there's that few seconds where he just breaks and he cries and he begs and I love every second of it. I'm glad that it wasn't a another big hand to hand combat. It wasn't a death wish moment. It wasn't a dirty Harry Callahan, Callahan kind of moment where you know he just brings out a big gun and blows his, blows him away. No, he stands there and tells him. You know, uh, I am your God now. And he literally, after after Jeremiah does everything, including begging him and telling him, that I will suck your dick. What do you want me to do? Red just crushes his head. He just gets this feat of an inhuman strength and squeezes the man's head until his eyeballs pop out. It is one of the most satisfying endings to a bad guy that, I've ever seen committed on film. I love watching just a man that, you know, that's supposed to be this big badass just crumble in, in, you know, in, in front of uh, real death. And I don't know how you guys felt, felt about that, Jerry. I mean, I'll start with you. I mean, what did you feel about our conclusion to the, the big, bad, small dick? It was real life. Yes. To me, it was real life. I've worked in bars. I've worked personal security. I've done bodyguard work. They break. When it comes down to it, they break. They ain't really wanting to get their ass kicked. And if they are, they're not sober. So that this was true to life. They break and beg for their life right before you beat the ever-living shit out of somebody. Yeah, let's see that. Daniel? To reference back to just, you know, things that we've talked about before, um, how basically John Wick had that pre-ending where he literally just walked up to the dude and shot him. His mission was over. Like, he didn't he didn't need to do anything. I, I love the immediate satisfaction of, yeah, there's no bullshit. There's no shooting someone behind a couch for five minutes. It's It's not like a for some reason now you know kung fu situation like it was just yeah it's immediate that's what a, a person would do that's how i commented earlier of like that was the failing like he knew and again it's kind of weird like jerry sorry small dick small dick knew of what he was but he had this like battle inside of him to number one I'm the shit, I'm God, I'm awesome, I'll suck your dick, please don't kill me, back to <laughs> you kneel before me. Like It was like he was trying to, to push himself up even more. But it's just, it was just very weird of like, if he had all this power, again, with the demon, Hellraiser, Mad Max, demons, whatever, um, if they're real, and all this other stuff is real of what's going on, like, well, how does that, 
how does that really tie in of what's going on in this little finale? It looked like the bottom of a well. Like it was a very weird uh, setup of wh- where that happened. But um, yeah, I liked how immediate it was. Yes, the antagonist had a monologue and, you know, that went on. But yeah, he didn't, like, Nicholas barely even said anything. Like, he didn't need to. He was about to kill him. He, there was no reason for him to say a bunch of words. Like, it was just I mean, really. And, and that's cool. real life. Real life. If, if, if you were confronted with this situation. I would have died and, from that stab wound. That's what I would have done. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but but I'm 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 just saying this this is how you would react if somebody if somebody lit my child on fire like this. Oh, it's on. I'm I'm gonna it's it's gonna be bad. It's gonna be probably worse than this. Well, it's very and I'm not gonna feel bad about it either. I'll probably jerk off on their dead body after I'm done. <laughs> Is that what Jerry the demon would do? No, that's what Jerry the dad would do. I don't care. I'll, <laughs> I'll kill people. Um, it, it doesn't bother me. Oh, well, that, that's what has to happen. Well, you know, that was something I had discussed with Patty when we were watching this. I'm like, there's two scary angles to this movie. Two things that evoke fear. One is watching something this horrible happening to someone you love, your mother, your sister, your daughter, your wife, uh, your kid, wh- wh- whatever. And the other scary part is the monster that you would become. You know, it's kind of like staring into the abyss and having it stare back at you. You know, it, it, there's two scary parts of it. The, the, the act of violence and then the furthering act of violence of the monster that you become to avenge. And I think that's... Uh, I don't know. That plays that angle very well. The, uh, the movie plays it very well. I, I love movies like Death Wish and Dirty Harry and kind of thing and things like that, where movies that more simplistic, older uh, films. But you know, this movie plays out a lot like that. You know, it's it's the monster you are versus the monster that you become. And uh, the boy you and, loved is the monster you fear. Yes, very good, very <laughs> good, sir. Well, that I, brings me. Oh, I do want to make one one small comment before before we finish, and it's completely out of left field. Um, the quote unquote forging of that blade in the film completely impractical. <laughs> that would have broken. The heat tempering of that is bullshit. He basically just made a mold of a chromium weapon. It would not have worked. <laughs> oh and no. He, and he just left it. Like at the end of it, he just dropped it for that chainsaw. I, I, but, I laughed, and, oh. and then when he did that, I was like, "What was the point of this? Why yeah. did we spend that five minutes?" I watched too much Forge and Fire, and and watch stuff like that. No, it, whatever. Like like I, like I told you, he wasn't a a lumberjack either. <laughs> you know, I've watched a lot of uh, Men at War or uh, the Man of War. Uh, series with Danny Trejo where the, you know, they forge different weapons and, and, and uh, I I've seen a few specials on it. I, I also realized just how utterly ridiculous that is. I mean, it's visually stimulating. It's a really neat symbol. It looks like something, like I said, that a Klingon would have in their backpack, but totally impractical. And let's face it, the way he was fighting with it, he would have killed himself with that thing before he would have hurt anybody else. He'd have made one wrong, wrong move with it, and they would have like, oh, shit, I lost a thumb. 
It did look cool, but it looks like something that the Predator would use, not a human. It, it right. too it much looked like something from the Predator and the jawbone of the ass or whatever from it from a supernatural that can't mar jawbone of the ass that killed Abel or whatever can kill Abel from supernatural. Oh, I don't remember the remember creature. That? It was like a Kiki Maru or something. I don't remember what it's called. I, I don't know. It had some weird like weapon. And that's what it made me think of, like a giant one of those, but and all then, silver. And then I, I don't know if you're going to like tie into it, but I do want to ask, um, because of a movie like this, and we, we've mentioned it a few times, you don't really know what's going on. There's a very pecu- peculiar ending, and it's very weird to really know what what's going on. Like, if it ends, what does it mean because we can't really spoil too much because we can't like show images to the, the audience. But like, did it really happen? About the final like, shots when Red is driving off and having his kind of visions. Exactly. And he's in cartoon world. Well, I mean, it's just like it's it's like not foreshadowing. It's like backtracking to uh, her wearing that Zeppelin shirt. And everything before, like maybe he's uh, trying to disassociate and remembering just the good times, but he's still him and like the very weird camera angle, like literally that that shotgun in the passenger seat angle of his face is such a jarring change from how the the framing of the rest of the movie has been. And then him just looking in the camera is just so unsettling. But it's just like, what is going on? There's like, there's no clear summary. Like it doesn't it doesn't wrap up everything to at least give you a. So do you think he was like tripping balls and like killed her and burned her up, and now he feels bad? Dude, I don't, I don't know. Like when when the movie ended, I actually really um, attributed it to one of my favorite movies, Session Nine, where the director knows what's going on. But he doesn't want to tell anyone what the movie's about or what actually happens because that's the whole fun of it. I yeah, really think like screwed me up. I really think the director has like a streamlined idea of what happened, but like he'll never tell anyone, and it just yeah. make make the interpretation yourself as a viewer. I'm just curious what y'all two think of it, how it actually ended and what it meant. Uh, to me. Where where I went with it in my mind is one of two things happened. Uh, he was either he was suffering from blood loss, and he was high off of the the brain juice, whatever you want to call it, high off cocaine. Drank a bottle of vodka and been running on nothing but pure adrenaline for hours. I think he was coming down from all that. And that he, it was residuals, uh, if you will, you know, uh, of all the things that he had been through, the trauma and the highs and lows. Uh, I think he was, you know, reminiscing. He, it was, a, to me, a simple just a reminiscing of, you know, because he was envisioning her looking like she did, you know, remembering how they met and whatnot and having that vision of riding with her in the car. And I think he was just. If anything, it was a simple remembering the good times and then, you know, the the visual of it was, you know, of course, he, you know, he's not seeing what we're 
he's not seeing what we're seeing or so to speak, but uh, you know, because we're, we're not tripping like he is, he's seeing it in a totally different light. I, I, you know, uh, I know a few people that I've talked to think that he was dying and it was him, her ushering him off into the, you know, the, the nether world or the great beyond or limbo, heaven, hell, whatever you want to call it, Valhalla, whatever. Um, I don't, quite buy into that mode i don't think that it was that he was dying i think it, it was this you know it was a very realistic portrayal of an unrealistic movie uh a, a, a realistic portrayal of an unrealistic idea you know and let's face it this kind of thing would never happen in reality you know between the 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 black death and then the, the children of the light and the the, the tripping and show everything. you i'm gonna go get a hornet right now and have it sting me in the neck and drink LSD. I will show you. It's real. Well, yeah. hey, I'll t- I'll take a shot to the neck if we get to do the other. <laughs> I just but, think. Well, my my thing is, I I think that it was a dream, and he just was off to work the next day. <laughs> I mean, think about it. He went to sleep talking to his girl. And then all this bad stuff happened and they woke up and then he kills all these people in all these crazy ways and does all this crazy stuff. And then we can't tell you wrong. He's just sitting in a car. I mean that like, like the ending where it's on uh, the drawing, like the drawing table and, and it's like elements of the whole movie. Like, and like when Mandy was reading that book, she kept reading the same page. Like all of this different thing, like what the hell was up with the tiger? What did that mean? Like what, what metaphor was like, I don't know. There's, yeah, it definitely could have been a dream. Like instead of that cliched, like, oh, it was just a dream thing. Like, no, it, yeah, you know, no, I've had they, some they pretty just, messed up nightmares. Because we, we, we don't tell whoever about our nightmares if we can remember them. We don't always tell them or we don't write them down. Right. Because or, you know, most of the time when you wake up from a nightmare, when you wake up from a nightmare in a dream, you, I mean, at least for, for me, I remember bits and pieces of what I dream. I don't remember entire, like, if I had a two-hour dream, I'm not going to remember it like a two-hour movie. I may, you know, that's, remember That's why I'm pieces. thinking, like, d- different parts of your dream are animated. Different parts of your dream are, like, exaggerated, like. The, the death people with their crazy mask and riding these motorcycles and stuff like that. What if this dude was just tripping on some mushrooms and fell asleep and was dreaming about some crazy shit, you know? Hey, I'm good with that. Yeah. And then he wakes <laughs> up and he's like, man, I don't remember shit, but I'm going to drive to work, work yeah. my shades off. Go back to being a shitty lumberjack. And he, he looks <laughs> over at, at, at his at his truck on the passenger side of his truck. He's like, huh? That was kind of a fucked up dream last night. <laughs> I guess I'll jerk off to that later. But, you know, <laughs> And he's just like, Oh, let's, let's go play with the wood. You know that? I mean, to me that that's, that's how oh, it ended. That's I how it was for me. <laughs> I don't know. I think the only one that could tell us that we're wrong is, is probably Panos. He's the only one that would be able to tell us that our interpretation. All right, I call of him out. Is, yeah, the hell with that. No, Jerry's theory is canon. That's it. That's what it is. <laughs> yeah, he's a it's shitty lumberjack who may or may not have been John Wick. 
and now he does LSD on the weekends and eats cheddar cheese while watching TV. <laughs> Fuck yeah, that's what I'm talking about. You know, I don't think I've ever heard the, this movie summed up that way, but I think I have a new outlook on the entire thing now. It, it only takes one Jerry. <laughs> and then okay. it's just a dream, so there'll be a sequel. That's it. 2024 exactly. is coming out. Well, no, sorry, eight years to make another movie, so... Well, did, uh, did you, in reading up here, that Panos did have an idea for a sequel that he said it will likely never be made because he hates the idea of sequels, but he had an idea for one that was basically, um, basically he said the transition would be like from Mad Max to Road Warrior. You know, it would be red in a post-apocalyptic future fighting, you know, like punk rock uh Nazis on motorcycles and stuff in a in a post nuke wasteland. And See, that's like, the thing. Yep. Like those ideas seem completely crazy, but if you go with it and you just let let whatever imagination you have, like uh, what was the movie Kung Fury? Like oh yes, that, yes. like it's just amazing. Like a- almost all of those um, terribly like two star rated sci fi movies, they're all super in the same uh, realm of of terrible, but they have the passion. They have like the, well, the intention of like making something coherent. Most and it's of like, them yeah. all have the same uh, name as our film, Uncle Lloyd, you know? <laughs> yeah. Nazis must die. Come on. <laughs> Class of Nukem High, you know what I mean? What? I mean, are you joking? I mean, what, what was the blob, the, the big purple goo thing? Have y'all seen that one? Oh my god! <laughs> I'd watch those. I'd, uh, yeah, I'll continue oh, watching. Them. But you know, we we love them. So <laughs> you know, it's, it's people always say you know it's kind of a niche market to do these kind of things, but I think they're becoming more and more popular, or at least not so much mainstream. But people aren't afraid to venture out in these into these kind of films anymore. At least. Not as afraid as they were, say, 10 years ago or even 15 years ago. I think that's why Cage does movies like this, or at least that's the whole romantic aspect of it. It's like that's the reason that you want to be an actor. Like you want to pretend and you want to do these extremely uh, weird and extravagant things that aren't real. I mean, like you can watch as many Fast and the Furious movies you want or those um, those TLC or Hallmark movies of just some midwife finding mm-hmm. love again. Like, that's and oh, gouge my genitals. But, but like, I completely understand how this movie is not not someone's thing. Like, I completely agree. But it's 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 cool to have these movies come out because you always know that there's that that corner of the room where those people will, will want to watch something like this. Like this is definitely like the goth kids table at lunch in high school or, you know, something where there's, there's almost no semblance of a reality or even like a timeline. Cause again, <laughs> in this film, you don't really have any, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like familiar areas, except for the beginning. Like, you know what a forest looks like and you know what a house looks like. But and almost I didn't everything know it was else from 1982. See, I didn't really catch that either. When you said that, I was like, "Huh? Well, that yeah, just looks sort like of makes sense." Lumberjack guys that or these wannabe lumberjack guys around here, you know? 
know, that's how they dress in Morehouse. Well, even the tech, like in their house and the, the the stuff and the TVs around, like it didn't really matter. That I think that's again one of the more important parts of this movie. It completely takes you out of what you expect from a, a a normal film that you would watch, and it just throws everything else out of the way. Like it doesn't matter what timeline that this is in or what state it's in, and like the rest of the movie is so obscured. You don't even know what really the set pieces are. Like it's basically the stuff in the foreground. And then you have these extravagant colors and this haze everywhere. And it's just such a cool movie. Yeah. That's you summed it up very beautifully there, sir. I appreciate that. But I gotta, uh, ask the question that I always ask of guests and I'll, I'll post this to you first, Daniel, and then you, Jerry, and then I'll go. Uh, favorite line of dialogue in the film? Well, when I when I watched it before, I really knew what he said. It's again the "you rip my shirt" part because again that that was the I laughed out loud. I thought he said, "You're in my shed." The way Nicolas Cage delivered that line, he was screaming while killing a demon or whatever the hell it was. You're just like, "You're in my shed," and it was. So funny, but then it was like, oh, well, I have subtitles on, and it said, you ripped my shirt, but it didn't sound like that at all. That was my favorite <laughs> line of the entire movie. Mine was when the, the dude was burning his wife. Uh, he said two things. One was, it's better to burn out than fade away. And mm-hmm. I used to live by that. What was the other one? It was the the darker the horror, the brighter the burn, or something. The brighter the flame. No, the brighter the flame. Yeah. Yeah, I want to say it was it because the way he said it. It's it's not just what he said; it's how he said it, and that's that that's the delivery is the the biggest part, but. My, when he's the way he said it's better to burn out than fade away, you're like, damn, you, you, you just gut punch this dude right after you burn his wife up. <laughs> and you got punched him twice, you know. I know. I, I mean, and he's sitting there, I want to say he was smoking a cigarette when he said it. I mean, or lighting a cigarette. I mean, because that's what I would do if I was, if I was sinister like that. I mean, lighting up a cigarette. Probably with her skull, but I mean that's <laughs> that's me. Uh, but yeah, that that was probably my favorite because that's my favorite line in life. It's better to burn out than fade away. Cameron, you're up. What's yours? Um, I I got it written down right here as uh, my favorite. The psychotic drowns where the mystic swims. You're drowning, but I'm swimming. It's- <laughs> Mm. God, I love I love lines like that, and and again, you know, delivered in oh. only a way that Nicolas Cage can. When Nicolas Cage was battling that weird thing inside that room, he called him, "Oh, aren't you just a vicious snowflake?" Oh, I love that. That's a good one. I went, "What? A vicious snowflake? Oh my gosh!" Oh, See, so many. I'm glad you brought up that scene. Just again, just to uh, make a comment, like. That was such a weird, again, a geographical room because in in one space that room looks like it's 
maybe a part of a factory or a warehouse with the the um, the metal that's everywhere, and it's and like the a heater. He, he, the, yeah, he was tied to a heater. And, it's got that. and then it, it moves into like an apartment or like a tenement building. But the, the demon that he said the snowflake to, like he fell down a, a fucking oh, well. Cow. Like, I don't, I really Where don't believe you. <laughs> that's why, that's why I really like, there's a lot of stuff happening in the front, the stuff that's taking all your attention, but the stuff in the background and the things that they're, they're moving around, it makes you really not believe that some of the stuff is happening. Exactly. So, like, like, that's something that would happen in your, in, in, in a dream. If, so if I, I don't, was to kill somebody, like throw them off, I don't see their body hit. I just see them going. Yeah. And they're gone where they go. Yeah, so like, see- I really want to watch this movie again to like really analyze everything, but it's such a good movie. That's not a problem. Like, I guess that's one of the things that you could end this podcast with. It's, it's such a wild ride, but it's, it wants you to watch it again. Like it's not just a one and done movie. Like there's a lot of them out there. This is definitely like a, an enjoyable rewatch. Oh, I enjoy it every time I've rewatched it. I probably have seen it six, seven times now. And, uh, I, I enjoy it more and more every time. And I find more things that I enjoy about it every time I watch it. Well, let's get into, um, our final reviews. Um, we have talked about the movie front, back, sideways, left to right, up and down. Uh, let's give our quick summary of what we feel about the film and a rating on a scale from 1 to 10. Uh, rules are the Cinema G Generation Network is guests go first. So, uh, Daniel, I'll let you take it, then you, Jerry, and then I'll uh, give my final review. Okay. As soon as the movie ended, and as soon as every movie I watch, really, I, I try and put a rating into IMDb or at least uh, research the movie. I like looking up trivia. Like there's a there's a heavy rhythm of what I do after I watch movies. It's very weird. I'm not like most people, but I immediately rated it a nine out of ten. Um, it's very it's very hard for me to get a ten. Like I'm just I'm such a like an asshole at most things and being critical, but I, I didn't want to give it a 10 because I, there, there was just a lot of stuff that didn't make sense. And it's, that's probably just because I'm, I'm either unintelligent. I wasn't paying enough attention, or at least it's, it's made that way to make you very uncertain of what, what actually happened. And a lot of movies don't do that. Like m- most movies with their formula, they, they have to come to a, a cookie cutter end because the uh, distributor or the, whoever's making the money off of it, they, they want a, a nice package. They don't want disgruntled audiences. So it's, it's not a normal movie by any means. So it was just – it left me – not left me wanting more because again I'd, I'd enjoy a sequel shit you could just make whatever you want and just call it mandy too but like i i just didn't feel like i understood it as much as i, I needed to so i just gave it a nine but that's a very very solid happy nine um but it's i'm very happy i watched this movie and i'm actually glad that i waited because I, I wanted to watch this ever since I saw the first trailer, but I waited, and then you asking me to be on this episode forced me to just put it up at the top of my list. So 
I'm just very lucky that I'm alive to watch movies like this. Nice. Jerry? Okay. I didn't know anything about this movie. Nothing. You said, hey, how about Mandy? I was like, what is that? He was like, it's Nicolas Cage. I said, let's look it up. And I go no further. As if anybody knows me and uh, my wife, Stephanie, we don't <clears throat> watch trailers to anything. I got to be surprised. And I was really, really surprised at this. Uh, so my number, I don't give tens because she don't have a French accent or an accent period. Uh, that's a joke. Anyway, y'all can laugh. <laughs> 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 uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> ring it, ring it. Damn crickets. Now, uh, I, I, I give it a nine because everything visually, uh, even if you did do certain and mood enhancers, you could enjoy this movie even more or it could scare the shit out of you and make you want to, you know, rip your skin off. But uh, I loved it. Enough killing, lots of chainsaw fighting, enough for me, a decapitation that I just watched, a flaming decapitation at that. I mean, great for me. And, and, if you want to see people's faces disappear, watch this movie because a dude's mouth goes away. <laughs> Scared well, the it's, crap it's, out it's of me. A, it's a movie that will uh, warp your mind and melt your face, that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I agree with a lot of the things the two of y'all have said. When I first saw it, I was a little higher on it. Uh, no pun intended. I was a little higher on it uh, when I, the first viewing or two because it was just it amazed me to no end. It still amazes me to no end. Uh, I gave it a ten. I, I don't hand out tens too lightly, but I did give it a, a ten on IMDb when I first uh, saw it. There's a few things that just like I kind of feel like I, I would like to see more Richard Brake. Uh, that one little you know pros and cons that's one con to it and there are a few things that you know technically don't make sense in the movie uh one of them the what you mentioned dan with the forging of the the, the blade and whatnot and how totally fucking impractical and impossible that was and is uh just a few little things minor minor quibbles but um i've come down slightly on it since it came out a year and a half ago I give it a nine and a half, so I'm just coming in, you know, half a notch uh, higher than both of you. But uh, yeah, it's a solid film, and uh, you know, I, I tend to uh, appreciate it a little bit more every time I see it. And uh, it has made me extremely happy to have both of you on the show and to kind of <laughs> force you all into a corner and been like, well, you want to be on the next show? This is what we're going to watch. And um, I love nothing more than turning people on to weird psychotronic cult-like exploitation films. And uh, especially my friends, I love to the, the turn them on to new things that they haven't uh, necessarily seen, or yeah, especially maybe if they even didn't want to see it. But I'm even more happy that both of y'all liked it. Um, I had a feeling the two of you would uh, 
would would love this film and it just it makes me happy that uh the three of us came in so high on it so yeah uh, yeah, absolutely and i I gotta say it has been a lot of fun uh talking uh mandy and rage cage with the both of y'all I wish we didn't have to do it uh, virtually like this. I wish we could get together a little more often. But then again, all my friends live states and states away. And in the midst of a pandemic and uh, and whatnot, it, you know, it, it makes it a little impossible to see your friends. But, uh, you know, hopefully one day we'll be able to get together again, whether on a film set or not. But uh, I got to say, it's made me a little nostalgic for the old days when we were on uh, the Devil's Music or, sorry, uh, Hell's Bell set. <clears throat> And uh, just hope, you know, that we can uh, get together again very soon, hopefully on Death Care or on uh, Parallels. Uh, hopefully one of one of us will be able to get uh, shooting underway again soon so we all can have an excuse to hang out and maybe turn yeah. each other on to even weirder fucking movies. Exactly. Uh, discussing this tonight rem- reminded me of the night on set when we were all... Uh, hanging out and everybody was kind of in a different room of the airbnb but we were all uh, a couple of us were crammed into that little tv room watching uh marcus's movie bloodshock and, you know, and that was a dude that was a mind screw and a half i love yeah I that was a mood oh <laughs> my goodness yeah that was, that was that was something else i just remember jim coming into the room like Oh, you guys are watching something dirty. Like, yes, we are. <laughs> We're watching something oh my. dirty. Oh, it wasn't dirty. Oh, my goodness. And also, what a funny uh, juxtaposition of people where there was a divider door with us in the dark watching Bloodshot or just the um, th- that atmosphere and then beyond that was a brightly lit dining room and living room and people were talking about disney movies and just whatever and it was just like yep these this what? is my friends wasn't <laughs> that when they were filming the the uh, a, a topless part too there was so much going that, on that might have been a <laughs> night i don't don't remember oh, i don't i don't know that was there was a lot of topless nights uh, and not and not just the shots that we did together I know, right? Oh, right. <laughs> and uh, just because I'm looking it up, uh, for those who don't know or have forgotten, uh, the Joe Exotic Project, the miniseries, Nicolas Cage is helming that as Joe Exotic. So, yay. I know. I had read something about that, that he was going to be playing Joe Exotic. And as crazy as, as it sounds, because if you would have told me a year ago that something like Tiger King would even be a thing, or let I'll have alone to watch it, <laughs> it's it, it's such a train wreck. But it's I gotta say, if if you don't want to watch it, don't watch it. I mean, because you'll get sucked in. You'll be like, oh, I'll just watch an episode of this. No, you know, you get you get sucked in, and the next thing you know, you're you're eight hours deep into that shit. But it's amazing. It's amazingly bad uh, TV, but I enjoyed every minute of that. And I look forward to seeing Nicolas Cage playing Joe Exotic. I don't care what anybody says. That's going to be a train wreck worth watching. Also, I just noticed that since 2016, every year Nicolas Cage has put out five films or five projects. So here's to 2021 and five more movies from Nicolas Cage. (laughs) Either (laughs) if they go to VOD or to cinemas. It don't matter. Keep working. Yeah, exactly. So some of us wish we had to help. 
to keep working. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. I've been chomping at the bit for the last six months. This was supposed to be the busiest year I was ever going to have. It was looking like it. And then, then, you know, just 2020 said, fuck y'all. <laughs> I sit you up and make you and punish you. Yeah. Make you get uh, stagnant and start hurting. Right, right. Well, gentlemen and Jerry, I'm oh, sorry. Yeah, and Demon. But uh, I'm going to bid you all a fond farewell here in a moment before I do. I just want to thank you guys once again for coming on the show. Uh, I've loved getting to shoot the shit with y'all and uh, it's been a fun time and hopefully we can get to do it again. I hope you'd have had half as much fun as I did. Always. Always. I love you both. Love thank you, you guys. Much, gentlemen. All right. Have a good evening, gentlemen. All and- right. Good night. <laughs> Get in my shirt!